Today on Sexually Woke with Dr. Susan, I'm reposting an old episode from this podcast about the secrets of the sexually woke from my book called Sexually Woke, because that's something people ask me about all the time. So now you get to hear it again. I hope you enjoy it. Hi, and thanks for joining me on this week's episode of Sexually Woke with me, Dr. Susan. So many of you know I published a book in October of 2020. The book's called Sexually Woke, Awaken the Secrets to the Best Sex of Your Life in Midlife and Beyond. And some of the questions I get asked the most are, you know, what are the secrets of the sexually woke, which is actually the last part of the book. So I hope you'll read the whole book, but just to get to the really good stuff, I want to share with you what are the secrets of the sexually woke. So we're going to talk about that today. So uh, just to back up, if you guys haven't uh, heard about me or the book before, um, I'm a gynecologist and I'm 53. I went through menopause um, earlier than expected. I was in my mid-40s and it was a full-on crisis, like you can't believe. And so even though I'd been teaching about menopausal and sexual medicine before that, I honestly, I joke a lot that I I didn't know what I was talking about until I went through it. Um, you know, you might not have to have had cancer to be a cancer doctor, but it probably would help. So like being a menopausal woman, um, having gone through this, I really added to my understanding of what it's like to be in this midlife world that so many of us are in. Uh, so long story short, and you can read the longer story in the book, um, in my mid-40s, I got super passionate about learning about midlife sexuality and menopausal medicine, m- mostly because I needed help myself. And I felt like I'd fallen into this gap where there wasn't anyone to help me. And this is as a gynecologist who had every resource at my fingertips. So, you know, just imagine if you don't have any help. So what happened is I decided to do some research to find out uh, who amongst us in the 45 to 65 group really had honed in to how to have an amazing, full, vibrant life, including an amazing sex life. And that led to a study that eventually led to this book that I called Sexually Woke because I was able to uh, study women uh, throughout this uh, amazing age group that we politely call midlife because we're going to live to be 100, right? So it is kind of midlife. Um, And then figure out what they had in common. So a couple of years of research and sitting in piles of little sticky notes and figuring out what was going on and hundreds of hours of interviews with these incredible women, I was able to hone down several things that they had in common. And these are the secrets of the sexually woke. And guess what? Um, I'm going to share those with you today, and it's kind of like you know getting the present before you read the first part, but the first part's pretty important too. But um, I wanted to talk about what women have in common who have a vibrant, open sex life. And I want to add that it's not just about having sex. So if you're listening to this and you think, yeah, I don't know, maybe that doesn't resonate with me because sex isn't a big thing to me, or maybe I'm single, or I'm not, um, sex isn't um, available to me because of health issues or other things. For me, um, just really recently in the last year or so, I've started this really deep understanding that sex drive isn't just sex drive. When we have sex drive, we have life drive. So 
sex drive just comes along with it. When I when I want to have sex, I also want to play tennis. I want to do stuff. I, I feel vibrant. I feel energetic. I want to wake up and you know, suck every moment of the day out of the day and enjoy everything that's happening. And at times when I don't have sex drive, when my libido's gone, I also don't want to do those other things. So I try not to get too hung up on this being just about sex, even though it's in the title of the show. Um, but to me, sex is not just, it's, you know, when we, I don't know about you, but when I uh, grew up, I learned that sex was just penis and vagina and you know, that was about it. Maybe there was a couple of positions and that was what it was. But in my study, I identified sex as any type of intimate physical connection. And that can even be with yourself. It doesn't require two people. So if you can expand your mind a little bit while you're listening to this, that might be helpful that, you know, sex is just intimate physical connection, at least in the way I'm discussing it. And when we have an improved sex drive, um, we have an improved drive for life. We just open to everything that life has to offer. So coming back to the book, so we studied all these women, a lot of women. Um, and then I, I don't, I'm not a statistician, so I had to hire some. And they honed in on the characteristics that seemed to show that certain women had it figured out, right? They, they had a they said they had a great sex life, that they were very connected to their partner, that they had very high levels of uh, self-worth and feelings of well-being and all of these things that we all want, right? Or at least I do. And, and when I was writing the book, I, I didn't have those to tell you the truth. I was searching for them. So I often call these uh, women my angels, and uh, they really were because they helped me to also be part of the sexually woke and and anyone can be these were they weren't different than you and I they weren't especially rich or thin or tall or you know weren't handed a silver spoon at birth they had all been through enormous struggles and so if anyone can do it uh, you can do it and although this group of women was only seven percent of the women that I studied and so if you're in the 93 percent that doesn't feel this way I want you to feel very uh, supported and connected to the rest of the majority of women who don't feel this way. But the bottom line is this enormous optimism that we can, in the second half of life, have an even better relationship with not just sexuality, but just opening ourselves up to whatever life has in store. And that often might present as sex drive, but you know maybe it's wanting to try new stuff or play I said play tennis because I'm learning to play tennis or whatever it is that you might have always wanted to do. Uh, it's not only still possible, but it's even more possible. So let's cut right to the chase. I narrowed down uh, three broad categories that these women in the sexually woke group had in common. And that was really hard to do because initially there were like 10, but they kind of overlapped. So I had to really narrow it down to three, because that just seems like a good number. So let's talk about what those three things are. Um, and I'm going to expand on each one of these in some later podcasts. I'll just kind of touch on them briefly today, because each one of them is a huge topic that we could talk about for a long time. And I'll be bringing in some guests over the next few weeks to talk about these kind of things as well. But uh, just to get started, since it's our first day, um, secret number one, was being open to possibility. 
So just take a breath with that idea for a second. And I'm going to tell you something that happened to me, which I relate in the book. Um, back in about 2010, so it was about 10 years ago when I started this journey of waking up myself, I went to um, a talk and I heard a speaker named uh, Ben Zander, Z-A-N-D-E-R. And he's not just a speaker, but he's actually a very famous uh, conductor um, of the Boston Philharmonic Orchestra. And he's an author and he wrote this incredible book called The Art of Possibility, which I recommend everybody reads. So he gave a talk and at the time I was in a pretty, you know, dark place and an unhappy marriage and a job I didn't love. And um, I was sort of searching for answers. And um, what he said just really gave me the push that I needed to open my mind to looking at things a little differently because the essence of the art of possibility in, in his book is basically that everything we think is important is invented. So uh, I challenge you to read the book. We won't talk too much about his book today. Um, but the way that we see the world is almost all a product of stories that we tell ourselves that that can be challenged. So they're not necessarily true. And there's a little story that he told. He didn't write this one. I might have, I'm not sure who the original author was, but I'll read it to you because it really kind of blew my mind when I heard it. And here's the quote. Uh, a shoe factory sends two marketing scouts to a region of Africa to study the prospects for an expanding business. One sends back a message saying, situation hopeless, no one wears shoes. The other one writes back triumphantly, glorious business opportunity, they have no shoes. So you might have heard that one before, but I, it just really made me think about the fact that what we think and believe is almost all a product of our conditioning, and it's not necessarily true. And it's not only possible, but it's really wise to challenge whether what we think is true so that we can open the box that we put ourselves in and realize that there isn't really a box, um, that it's created by our, by our minds. So in this situation, um, is going to a place where nobody has shoes, a great opportunity to sell shoes or a terrible one. It really depends on where you put your attention. So what does this have to do with sex? Well, turns out it has a lot to do with sex because in my case um, and in the case of the women that I interviewed, uh, so many of us felt like we were living in a box, a box that we felt like we couldn't control. Maybe it was a marriage that wasn't what we wanted, a job that we didn't wanted, want, that we didn't love anymore, um, opportunities that we weren't pursuing, that we had been told by maybe our inner voice or another person that we, we couldn't do that. Like, you know, you, you can't do that. I can't tell you the number of times I was told my, my myself and even some other people that you can't write a book those kind of things about uh, what I call as a coach uh, limiting beliefs. So limiting beliefs are not true. And when it comes to sex, there's nothing that is a bigger sex drive killer than limiting beliefs about what you should do or what you are able to do when you're 50 or 45 or 65 that it's not appropriate for you to do these things. Or maybe you heard them from your church or your parents, or maybe it's just your own inner voice. Uh, but I'll, I'll quote this from the book because it, it really seems relevant, and I've done a lot of uh, 
speaking in women's circles and things about this concept. Um, this is a quote from the book. Uh, when you feel trapped in a box, you don't want to have sex. Truly making love is gen- generative, free, expressive, and creative. It's a dance that takes place in an open field, not a dark tunnel. Love cannot be confined within walls. Trying to do so makes it die. And when I wrote that short paragraph, I really felt like I was on to something because that was exactly how I was feeling at the time. And then I interviewed other women who felt the same way and had learned how to get out of that box because it it doesn't really exist And once we can see that the walls of that tunnel are actually opaque and we can see through them and that there's something on the other side that's actually infinite and their possibilities are endless, then all of these limiting beliefs start to crumble because they're they're not based on anything real. So the end point of this idea is that it's really not aging that causes our sex lives to decline. Now, there are some anatomical things that happen with aging that we can correct if you come see me. So without a doubt, you know, aging does come with some anatomical issues that affect sex drive. But primarily, it's not aging that causes our sex life to decline because I've met women who are 75 who have the best sex drive that I've ever seen and women who are 20 who have none. But it's the feeling, conscious or subconscious, that we're trapped. And if you think about the concept of being trapped, by its very nature, when we're trapped, we're not free. I mean, those things are opposites, right? When I'm feeling trapped, I'm not free. And the type of sex that I'm talking about, which is the you know really higher evolution of sex where we can be truly present and like really experience the interconnection between ourselves and another being and be completely relaxed and free to be ourselves, cannot take place when we're trapped. And, and I love that idea because it seems so obvious, uh, but in as much as we are feeling trapped, and I'll just tell you, if you are, you're in a great majority, like I said, like 93%. But in uh, as much as we're feeling trapped, we're not free, and therefore we're not available to experience these amazing things. So this is why women of all ages have a spike in libido when they start a new relationship. So I would see women as a physician. You know, I've been seeing women for 22 years, and you know, most of them would come into the office and, and – like myself in our 40s and and same story. I, I don't want to have sex with my partner. I, my libido's gone. But sure enough, if they happen to find themselves in a new relationship, all of a sudden that came back. And so that pattern repeated itself so many times in my experience, like what happened? Um, so we have a joke in my office. She's not dead. She's just taking a nap. Like nothing had died. Uh, so if you feel like that part of you has died. Uh, It hasn't because it's not possible for that part of you to die. It's part of who you are. Our sexual being is a huge part of who we are. Uh, So who we are never dies. Uh, Who we are is always present and available to us, but certainly parts of who we are can become so squashed and repressed that they I mean, you know, it sort of feels dead, right? And it's dead to me. I thought I was dead below the waist for about 10 years. Uh, but we put ourselves in this prison and we forget that we hold the key. But outside those walls, there's this world of infinite possibility. So 
you know, when I interviewed women, um, they said some of the most amazing things. And um, regarding this particular topic, uh, so many metaphors came up around the open to possibility idea without me asking. Because remember, back, you know, when I was doing the study, I hadn't figured out that open to possibility was a secret of the sexually woke that came later. It was through looking at the words that they used. And I had, um, I heard about coming out of a shell. I heard about unlocking a prison door. I heard about breaking through the walls of a box. Uh, All kinds of different metaphors that pointed to the same kind of universal understanding that this idea of limiting ourselves is delusional uh, because we're not limited. Uh, Now, I'm a human being and I can't fly, so there's some things I can't do. Um, however, you know, within the realm of being a human being, we're not limited. You you can learn to play a musical instrument. You you can write a book. You can have the most amazing sexual relationship that you've ever had when you're 55. Uh, the only thing that's preventing you from doing that is your own limiting beliefs. So. I'm going to share a couple of quotes uh, from the women that I interviewed. Uh, One of my favorite ones uh, was from uh, someone that I call uh, Lexa, and she says, I think of my sexuality as a sea snail, the kind with a coiled shell. For most of my life, my sexuality had lived inside a shell. For one thing, it's not safe to be gay, so I hid. But now, when I feel safe and happy, the snail will venture out of her shell and start to venture across the ocean floor and explore this unknown new world. I used to think the shell was a prison, but it's really just a place to be safe if there's real harm around. When I feel safe, there's a door that I can venture out of and go as far as I want. And I love the way she said that because, you know, it having a safe place to go and and being back in our comfortable space within our box and walls isn't wrong. It's safe. And so we go there because we, we you know, we're human beings. We're still animals. We uh, are driven by a desire to survive and be safe. So going back into your box is fine. I'm not suggesting that you go outside your walls and stay there forever. But, you know, venture out and you can always come back. It's not a permanent commitment. And I, and I love the way she said that. Another uh, of the women I interviewed said, uh, it seems to me there are two possibilities. One is that you're still in a fog of years of youthful, idiotic, delusional thinking, not really understanding things. On the other hand, now with some years and experience under your belt, you have a certain strength, clarity, and wisdom. I'm starting to understand things. In the old days, they would have called me a crone, you know, the wise old woman that the village would go to for advice. But maybe I can be a sexy crone. I feel better than ever. I don't care so much about what other people think. I'm free to be myself. I can make love with my husband, and I'm all here. And I love that idea because being all here, uh, which uh, I'll talk about a lot on this podcast, is about being present in the moment. And that kind of leads pretty much into secret number two, But I'll just sum up secret number one, which is, as you remember, is being open to possibility, that really all of these accounts seem to point to one thing, which is a shift from a scarcity mentality based in fear 
to an abundance mentality based in love and freedom. Whatever metaphor was used, emerging from a box or tunnel, coming out of a shell, finding freedom and spaciousness, or become more present in the moment, all of these things, having more peace and ease, the sexually woke group didn't see themselves as old and irrelevant. They didn't view their lives as being over. Rather, they had a strong sense of a new beginning. And that's a, such an important mind shift. to. And it's, nothing changes in the outside world to shift from living in a scarcity mentality to living in an abundance mentality. The, the world outside doesn't change. It doesn't mean you all of a sudden have more money or you've got more to give or you've got more of yourself together. It just simply means that you've shifted your perspective from being always in, in need and having not enough, like I'm not enough, to having an abundance. And I don't know how to do that without having a connection to some kind of higher source. And we all have uh, different views on what that is. Uh, but inevitably that came up that there was some body outside of ourselves uh, somebody is probably not the right language to use, uh, whether you call it God or your higher power or whatever, but some some connection to understanding that we're not alone. And that could be just understanding the, the deep sea of connection we have with other women, but some idea that we're, we're not alone and we don't live in scarcity, that we've got this enormous amount of power to draw from. And shifting to abundance means that I can I can give and I can relax and be generous as a lover. And I talk in the book a lot about uh, sex being a generosity practice as we get older. Now, when we're younger, sex is a what I can get for myself practice. At least it was for me and everyone else I've met. But as we get older, we have this great opportunity to shift sex to being a generosity practice. So when we approach life from abundance and opening to possibility and this sex, which I remember I call it just intimate physical connection, can be an act of generosity. Then we're, we're giving, and you can't give from a place of scarcity because you don't have anything, but giving from a place of abundance. And without requiring anything back in return, we get back in return whenever we give from a place of abundance. So it just turns into this amazing, beautiful kind of virtuous cycle where everybody's just you know, happy and giving and getting. So moving on to secret number two. So secret number two was before you can be in a genuinely connected, intimate relationship, you have to know yourself first. And that might sound so obvious and corny that it's sort of overlooked. But what came up from every interview I had was that each woman in this group had a deep understanding of approaching relationships from a position of wholeness. And so what I mean by wholeness is that they didn't need their partner to fill anything that they were missing. They came to the relationship feeling whole. And again, going back to that idea of abundance, they, they came to the relationship not with a, a sense of scarcity, needing to cling and suck something from the other person in order to feel okay. They came to the relationship feeling whole and, and with an overflowing ability to give. And if you, if you don't feel like that, remember, you're in a huge group of 93%, but doing some work uh, to 
on yourself and learning about self-compassion and learning to love yourself as you are and all these things that have really become cliches in our um, culture, but yet we still don't do them, um, seem to be vital before we can be in a genuinely connected relationship because there's nothing wrong with, you know, really wanting to be with another person and um, being, you know, terribly full of grief if they leave that's that's human nature but needing another person to to fill a hole in yourself becomes uh you turn into an energy vampire is what i call it where you're sucking energy out of the relationship and if any of you which is most of us have been in a what's called a codependent relationship where uh, both people are sucking energy out of the relationship, um, it's uh, toxic. Basically, there's no other word for it. And um, I can tell you all about that because I've had lots of experience with it. So um, I'm going to quote from the book here, uh, but I personally tried for most of my life to define myself through the eyes of others. But through my own experience and research, I can tell you this never ends well. Until you can define yourself through your own eyes, and love yourself exactly as you are, it's impossible for you to accept that from someone else. And just think about this. Just do the math. If I'm unlovable, then I'm unlovable. There's no way to fix unlovability by having someone else love you. They can't truly love you because you're unlovable. It's a catch-22. And I I love that idea because, uh, you know, I've heard all these songs my whole life about, you know, Whitney Houston sang about the greatest love of all, and then she had a demise that was clearly based in self-hatred and addiction and other things. And so, you know, we talk about these things, but we don't frequently embody them into our lives, and it's so important. Uh, So I heard this message so many times from so many people in different ways. If you're coming into a relationship full of self-hatred or self-doubt, and you're not completely integrated or pulled together— You really can't show up as as a full participant in a relationship because you don't know yourself yet. So I often say this, but I can't be fully present with another person if I don't know who's here. And and I just, it's almost worth kind of stopping and thinking about that for a second. But if I don't know who's here, how can I fully show up and be present in a relationship? I can't. Like somebody's showing up, but it's not my full, authentic, beautiful, perfect self. It's uh, who knows who, because I don't know myself yet. So if we know that we can't be present if we're not fully here, we also can't be fully present if we're harboring some unspoken feelings or hiding the truth because we're not showing ourselves. And that comes to withholding. So this idea of withholding part of ourself, if we're withholding something of ourself, maybe if we're stuck in resentment, like not saying what we really want to say, if we're holding anger in, or if we're trying to be straight when we're actually gay, or if we're trying to be skinny because we're worried about our weight, or if we're trying to be lighter skinned because our culture's taught us that's what we're supposed to be, or fill in the blank. That situation makes it impossible for someone to really know you. If you're not expressing your full true self, then how can you be in a genuine connected relationship? So, uh, Here's a quote from one of the women that I interviewed, and I love this one. If there's an elephant in the room, you know, this thing that you'd be fighting about if you dared to fight, but you just pretend to ignore it, 
then the elephant is stepping all over the potted plants. While you're ignoring the elephant, it's killing everything. That's the kind of thing that makes it impossible for me to relax into love and sexuality. Just the lack of being real and seeing what's in the room and dealing with it. Elephants are not evil, but they need to be dealt with or they will destroy your house. And I absolutely love that one. It's so true. Like so many of us get to a point where we just don't even talk about sex. It's like, ugh, like it becomes such an elephant in the room that, you know, I would, when I was married, um, in the book, it talks about my divorce and, and, and we were equally to blame. So there's no fault being uh, cast here, but he would come towards me and I would recoil like, oh my God, I'm going to pretend to be asleep. Or I just didn't, that wasn't what I wanted because I had so much unspoken resentment. And, it, you know, after a while, it just became something we couldn't even talk about. And so the elephant in the room idea, I think is is huge. I didn't know myself well enough to communicate what I wanted. And so that is I take full responsibility for that. So how how can we expect our partners to know what we want and, and know what makes us happy if we're not able to articulate it ourselves? And so, you know, I want to bring the responsibility back to ourselves for a moment. Like we're really good at uh, slinging mud against our uh, partners and ex-partners. But let's just uh, take a moment to take responsibility for the fact that we didn't necessarily share with them what we really wanted and they cannot read our minds. And we probably didn't even know what we really wanted. So getting back to sex, uh, all of the women in the sexually woke group were very comfortable with their bodies. Now, these were not particularly beautiful or slim or young or any other um, adjective that you might traditionally find attractive. They were every kind of woman, gay, straight, black, white, obese, thin, Athletes, couch potatoes, doesn't matter. But they had learned to know and love their own bodies, and they were all really comfortable with self-pleasure. So if, if we don't know as women how to self-pleasure, how could we possibly teach our partners how to do it? So a you know, really important lesson from the sexually woke is uh, we need to spend a lot of time with ourselves and figure out what feels good if we want to have a genuinely connected, amazing sexual relationship. And we need to be really comfortable talking about it with our partner. Um, and I, I can promise you almost without exception, um, if you have not done that in the past and you start doing it, uh, it almost always will be extremely well received. <laughs> I've met very few partners of women who have opened up and started talking about what they want or maybe brought some toys into the relationship or uh, shown their partner how they uh, self-pleasure themselves using a vibrator or whatever. And it, I mean, most uh, partners are going to think that's incredibly exciting and amazing. And I would just venture to say that if your partner did not think that was incredibly exciting or amazing, it might be time to renegotiate the relationship because maybe they're not on the same page with you about wanting to open up and uh, really become more connected. So um, 
without exception, the sexually woke knew how to take pleasure into their own hands, so to speak. So we all need a good vibrator or two. We need to look in the mirror, you know, hand mirror, or you know, look at our anatomy, know where things are, study clitoral anatomy. I've got some uh, videos about that on my website. The clitoris is way more than that little tiny bit that we can see. And, you know, when we learn about that, uh, just the world opens up to how much pleasure we can uh, achieve. That This is an organ that was only made for one purpose, which was to achieve pleasure. So let's use it and maximize it. And honestly, after being on the low end of the power differential since the beginning of time as women, taking control of our sexual pleasure is enormously empowering. And uh, if you're heterosexual, I know men love it. And I've heard, you know, no matter what your sexual preference is, your partner is going to love that because there's nothing worse than being in a sexual encounter with somebody who is not giving you feedback and you don't know if you're doing the right thing. Um most of us have experienced that, and it's a horrible feeling. So like communicating with the person is, a, is an act of generosity to let them know, I like it when you do this. It's really good to put it in positive terms. You know, I really like this. I like that. I like what you're doing. Or, um, you know, even outside of the that, that maybe more charged sexual encounter, the conversation could occur at another time. Like, I really like it when you do this or that. Um, so that nobody's left in the dark. You know, there's nothing worse than um, not feeling like you're able to pleasure your partner. That's a horrible feeling. So perhaps it comes down to this one thing. We're not a victim. Life's not happening to us. You know, when we're victims, we're not free. So once we truly know ourselves and can take responsibility for where we are in our life, we're free. We're free to to love and be loved exactly as we are. But until we get to that point, we're still going to have this element of being stuck, trapped, you name it, any uh, opposite that you can come up with for being free. And uh, having an amazing sexual relationship to me is all about freedom. I mean, those words just go together. And um, from interviewing Lots and lots of women, they all said the same thing. So on to the last and equally important secret number three, which I call intention and attention. So I'm going to put a little thought into what that means. And I'll tell you a little story. Uh, There's a, a very famous Zen master named Richard Baker Roshi. And I heard this story. It was re- I'm repeating it, so I didn't get it from the original source. But apparently he was once asked to give a talk on summarizing how to guide humans towards true transformation. That sounds like a real big, deep topic, right? So he had been given 20 minutes to give his talk, and he walked up to the microphone, and he said, transformation is caused by two things, intention and attention. And then he walked off the stage. (laughs) So that's how the story goes. I'm not sure if that really happened, but I like the idea. So uh, there's a saying I like, which is similar, which is that the grass is always greener where you water it, right? I mean, if if we don't pay attention to our relationships, they will die. So what's the difference between intention and attention? Because sometimes they get thrown around and um, they might sound like they're the same. But here's my thought to me. Intention comes from the deep internal decision to act in a certain way on purpose. 
Okay, so intention is a deep internal decision to act in a certain way on purpose. So that's that's that one. Attention, on the other hand, is where I choose to focus my mind. So it's a little little bit different, but similar. And how this come, came up in relationships and why this became one of the three secrets of the sexually woke is really interesting because when I um, interviewed these women and I was asking them uh, what their uh, behavior patterns were and like what did they do in their relationships to um, make things so great? Like what were the like what were the little nitty gritty things that they did? And one of those things was really simple. Just whenever there was coming and going, like a hello or a goodbye, uh, you know, you're leaving for the day to go to work or you're coming home from work. Um, there was this beautiful, almost a ceremony kind of, or a, just a, 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 an intentional moment given to saying hello and goodbye in a really loving way. And one of the interviewees said it was almost as if every day I said goodbye in such a way as it might be the last time I'm ever going to see him, which could sound morbid if you looked at it that way. But I thought it was so beautiful because we don't really know. And um, giving that much attention to every coming and going just really gives the other person such a gift of, uh, again, our time being present with them, even if it's if it's for 10 seconds. When they come home from work, I can tell you, you know, com- commonly, like in my old marriage, um, my ex-husband would come from home from work and we would just go straight into, you know, business. Did you take the trash out? Like when's the babysitter coming? There wasn't, you know, that 10, 20, 30 second moment of, it's great to see you. You know, how are you, my, how are you, my wonderful husband, my cute little sexy man, or, you know, whatever fun little thing you might say, a little rub on the head, or maybe it can't last very long because we've got kids, we've got dinner and bills to pay. But just that quick moment where we can look at each other in the eyes and recognize that I've got you, I'm here, I'm with you, seemed to be so key. And so the coming and going was amazing. And uh, one of the cute, um, accounts that I'll read you from one of the women I interviewed said, uh, she said, I like to say something flattering by teasing, wow, it's really great to see you today, my sexy man. Or I'll rub his head and say, how did I get so lucky? Then he'll wink at me and call me his beautiful wife. Some days I'll walk out to the car and then I'll go back inside if it doesn't feel like my goodbye was adequate. Maybe it's the last time I'll ever see him. One never knows. I want every goodbye to be sufficient just in case it's the last time. And I want every goodbye to be sufficient because it just feels good and it feels right. It is right. And that was a really common theme. The sexually woke were genuinely happy to see each other and made a point to vocalize that emotion. And they didn't feel sadness when the other left because, again, they were whole. Uh, They didn't feel needy around their partners. But there was a recognition of value, like a genuine shift of focus to the other and a wish for them to have happiness and whatever they were doing that day. So when you say, have a good day, darling, it's not just a trite remark. It's actually, you know, a real heart wish. So uh, I heard that again and again. Um, So one of the other uh, women I interviewed said, to get to that place, I have to pause for a second become present, find my body, and speak from the heart. It takes intention. I do it because it's important. He's important to me. 
Words as simple as hello and goodbye can be said from many places and can mean many things, but my intention is to say them from the heart and with presence as a whole body statement, which I really love. So if you think about a whole body statement, if I'm saying hello, I love you to someone with my whole body, it's a whole lot different than the way we just say, hey, how are you to somebody passing on the street? Another thing they shared in common in this intention and intention uh, section was just valuing connection. Uh, So they really paid attention to making sure that they connected physically. You know, maybe it's uh, sex in the way we traditionally think of it, or maybe it's just physical connection in another way. It might be just a passionate kiss or looking into each other's eyes. But that was a priority. So, you know, we're trained in our culture to think that everything else is a priority, right? That we have to put the kids first, that we have to put everything else first. But there was a sense that the sexually woke had shifted out of that mentality. Um, and there's actually quite a lot written about this, that the idea of putting the kids first is is not the most healthy thing for the the relationship. If you're in a long-term relationship with your spouse and you're the parents of children, which isn't most of our situations, but um, we came first. And if we don't give energy to the relationship first, then we don't have anything left to give our children. So uh, children are very important, and I have three. But always putting the kids first uh, is saying to our partner that they are not as important. And when you hear that over and over again for 18 years— um, it, it becomes a, you know, pretty tough. So, you know, what, what it comes down to is when someone's really present with you, it's a gift. It's a huge gift. They're choosing to put you above all the other billion things in the world. You feel important and loved because you are important and loved. And that's incredibly important advice, I think, that when you're together, be present. Turn off your phone. Uh, because if your mind's somewhere else, you're not giving it to that person. It's like being half the year. You're you're telling them that you're just not that important. And, um, you know, with the prevalence of this uh, scarcity mentality and not feeling good enough that's already in the world, when the person that we're most close to is constantly telling us that we're not that important, uh, that's a very slippery slope. So another thing that came up was that uh, self-care – was equally important. So we've, you know, I've been talking about paying attention to the relationship, uh, but we don't want to lose ourselves in the relationship. So everyone in the sexually woke group was very intentional about self-care. So if you think about these two whole people, whole people, and then the the relationship is like a third entity, kind of like so. There's person number one, person number two, and then the relationship in the middle, each of these uh, whole individuals did things by themselves. Um, And that's extraordinarily healthy. And the other partners supported them. Uh, So whether it was going to a movie by yourself, going for a walk, in my case, I might do a triathlon or set up some kind of goal that's just for me, that's so important. And I can have my own friends. Um, Having same-sex friends came up over and over again. Um, and I, like many of us, I had lived a huge amount of my life without having paid attention to my same-sex friends. Was, you know, frequently we get married and we get really engrossed in the marriage and now, um, mar- you know, marital family and then the children. And we might, you know, hang out with our girlfriends with the kids or, or so on, but we're not... Um, cultivating same-sex friendships. And actually, a couple of years ago, I went on my very first 
all-girls trip. We went to Italy for one of my uh, very dear friends' 50th birthday, and I had ignored that friendship for many, many years. And um, just rekindling it and spending a week with just women um, was so enriching. And I uh, can tell you from experience of having not done that how important that is because, you know, we can't rely on one person to give us everything that we need. That's a huge responsibility for the other person, and it's unrealistic. Um, Having uh, female friends uh, as women is incredibly important. And, uh, you know, there's there's so much we can learn from other women. And so putting all that responsibility on our spouse, if we're heterosexual and our um, male partner is uh, doesn't help either of us. They also did these little things that I thought were so cute, little tiny things that don't cost anything and have a huge impact. Uh, one of my favorites was a, a woman who'd been married for 30 years, and she would leave little sticky notes on the mirror. You know, I love you or can't wait to see you or, um, you know, little things like that. Or, or just uh, one of the women that I interviewed said, the one thing I really love is that he'll take my car and drive me to work. Then he'll pick me up at night if it's rainy or cold. I know whatever the weather is, he's right out there and I don't have to walk across the parking lot. That's just so sweet. Those small moments of caring add up in an amazing way. It's not a great dramatic instance that punctuates an otherwise self-centered life. It's lots of these small little things. And so, you know, these don't cost us anything. I I love this other idea. Um, This woman's kind of a comedian, but I love her. She said, find the top five things that each of you want. And if you both take care of those five things, then you're good to go. I know what makes my husband happy. He loves espresso, so I make sure we have a good assortment of espresso. And he likes great quality bacon on the weekends. So every Friday, I go out and I make sure we have some. So that might sound really simple. But imagine if you incorporated just some of those fun little things into your life. We just kind of forget to do them, and they're so easy. Uh, I love this quote. Uh, She said, Sometimes he buys me flowers for no reason at the grocery store. Possibly it's just because the ones he brought me last week died. It's so sweet. I mean, just who does that? But let's do some more of those things. And then novelty was so important. You know, we all know that if we want to get better at anything, we have to practice it. If you want to play the piano, golf, or tennis, you've got to uh, push yourself outside your comfort zone, you know, try a piece that's a little bit harder, uh, you know, get a coach and, and, you know, push yourself a little bit harder. Uh, but when it comes to our relationships, we, we tend to get stuck in a groove and not push ourselves to the edges of our learning curve. But that was so important, going to the edge of our comfort zones. Um, now, that could mean doing different things sexually, doing role playing, trying different positions, just being more open. Uh, whatever it is, but getting outside of that same groove and comfort zone. And the women in the sexually woke group seem to do that all the time. Um, and some of you know that I'm obsessed with Soul Cycle. I go to spin class, and my really good friend Meg, who's going to be on the show in a few weeks, uh, says all kinds of amazing things. But I quoted her in the book saying, Push yourself to the point of doubt. If you're certain that you can do it, you're not trying hard enough. Go into a new world of uncertainty. That's where the growth is. And I love that idea because, you know, this is a spin class, right? So we're talking about it in terms of enhancing your physical fitness. But uh, spin class is really a metaphor for uh, what you can do 
outside of class. Uh, we all know what it's like inside our box. There's nothing surprising. We're not going to learn anything. We're not going to grow. We're going to do the same thing over and over. But it, once we push ourselves to the edges and a little bit beyond, that's where we start growing. And we, we know this intimately when we're talking about trying to build muscles or trying to learn a new skill. Um, but when it comes to our intimate relationships, we, we tend to forget. So uh, super important. And remember, if you're outside your comfort zone, you're going to be uncomfortable. So we have to get comfortable with being uncomfortable. Uh, being uncomfortable doesn't mean something's wrong. It means we're growing. And so, uh, you know, by its very nature, if we're determined to always be comfortable, we're never going to grow. So, uh, you know, think about it in terms of what you do at your exercise class or your golf lessons or anything else. It's no different with our relationships. We've got to keep pushing ourselves to our learning edges um, in order to grow. And without growth, what happens to relationships? They stagnate and die, right? And, it, you know, now looking at the data where, where about 50% of marriages end in divorce and more than half of the ones that don't get divorced are unhappy, we have to do something different if we want to live in, in, a, in happiness and be excited about our lives and wake up every morning being glad to be here and uh, can't wait to see what's going to happen. And that's the way I want to live. And I think most of us do too, but we've got to change the way we approach things. Uh, this is a quote from the book that summarizes that one thing that's universally valued by the sexually woke is growth. If you want to get the same result, do the same thing. To get a better result, try something different. It's as simple as that. And we all know this, right? But uh, we don't always do it. Another thing in the same uh, vein with intention and intention is uh, making sure that you make time to play. So play is uh, defined in the dictionary that I referred to as to engage in activity for enjoyment and recreation rather than a serious or practical purpose. So having fun for no reason. Um, many of us have forgotten how to play as adults. Uh, and I was personally conditioned to think that uh, most forms of play were a waste of time because I was all business all the time. And so if I, you know, anything, anything that was just fun was a waste of time because time is money and blah, 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 all that kind of capitalistic uh, uh, conditioning that we suffer with. But it, it doesn't lead to happiness. Uh, so when I finally understood that doing absolutely nothing for no reason was one of the best uses of my time, like life really became more open and free and everybody around me was happy about that too. Uh, so finding some kind of play activity that you can do together. Um, you know, sex can be play. That's a great form of play. Uh, so can tennis or golf or skiing or or Scrabble, or dancing, or you name it, like anything that you love to do. And uh, relationships that, it, it, you know, and I was in one, so I'm speaking as a um, person who formerly didn't play. Um, couples have to have fun together. You know, one thing that um, this this interviewee connected with was dancing. She said, when we dance, he leads and I follow. That's sometimes a huge task. We had this awesome dance instructor, and the number th number one thing we had to learn was connection. If you don't hold each other just right, 
and follow each other just right, your dance is going to be off. And I thought that was so sweet. So, you know, t- taking dance lessons, what a, what a great idea. I haven't done that yet, but I'd love to. Um, others had Tennis Tuesday or rode bikes or hiked together. I mean, you can pick your own thing. It doesn't matter. Or play board games. But something that's just fun and playful. Because when did life get so serious? And uh, we've got to remember how to play. And, you know, we, we can watch children and learn from them and just remember what it was like to do fun stuff for no reason. Another thing that they did was use words carefully. And there's a concept of wise speech, uh, being really careful about our words. You know, we all know that um, on, on the far end of the spectrum, using abusive language that's in, intended to hurt is you know, clearly a deal breaker for a healthy relationship. But um, even in more subtle ways, uh, the ways that we don't talk to each other with kindness and compassion can completely uh, cut out uh, sex drive. Was the number one uh sex drive killer in my study was resentment. So, you know, if you've been hearing language or using language that's sort of subtly unpleasant or passive aggressive or even outwardly uh, emotionally abusive, we're going to develop a huge amount of resentment. And nobody wants to connect with another person when they're feeling resentful uh, because, you know, resentment is is a form of withholding and going back to uh, showing ourselves and knowing ourselves in as much as we're withholding saying what we mean, like I'm fucking angry at you or whatever it might be, uh, we're not showing ourselves. So resentment uh, is toxic to, to a healthy sexual relationship. So using words with care, uh, you know, talking in kind ways, you know, learning about ways, uh, you know, there's lots of um, literature about a system called uh, nonviolent communication or NBC, which is sort of come into um, popular use where we start sentences with I feel like XYZ instead of you did this. <laughs> so if I start something with, um, you know, I feel like blah, 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 it's it's a lot uh, less likely that the other person's going to become angry and defensive than if I said you did. Da, da, da. So just something simple like that. Start your sentences with I language. And then uh, the last thing I'll say is um, – they, these uh, amazing women really understood that it's never too much. And what I mean by that is like saying I love you and, and giving compliments and uh, words of affirmation. Uh, it, you really, it's really hard to overdo it. Um, there's a joke that I heard where the wife said, he never tells me he loves me to the therapist. And the husband said, I told you I loved you when we got married 30 years ago. And I'll let you know if anything changes. But the fact is we need regular affirmation. Yeah, we need to keep the pilot light burning. We're human beings. And I'll just end this by saying uh, something that my uh, spiritual teacher, Vinny Ferraro, who I recommend you check out. Uh, Vinny Ferraro teaches at Big Heart City Meditation Center in California. So if you look up Big Heart City, you'll find him. He's got lots of really amazing talks, and he does a live talk uh, on Zoom on Friday evenings. Uh, but Vinny said, I used to think there was always something missing in my life, but it turns out the only thing that was missing was my presence. And I thought that's such a beautiful sentence that I refer to often. So uh, we'll be back next week and I look forward to seeing you then. <laughs>